Great to have you with us as well this morning. Uh, we're going to look together at uh, that passage in John 13. Have you noticed um, how the powerful people of our world display their glory? There are all sorts of personalities and people we could think of in this regard, but let's take the royal family as an example. They each have many titles, except for Andrew. Um, they have jewels and gold and silver. Around them are servants to attend to their every need. They, are, they own expensive cars. They have lots of castles and properties, not to mention gilded carriages and everything else in their beautiful palace. They like to remove themselves as much from the everyday drudgery of the world as they can. I haven't seen the Queen out with the lawnmower at Buckingham Palace. Maybe you have. I doubt it. They have people to do that. They have people to shop for groceries. They have people to take their car for a service. In fact, they've probably got their own garage that does the service in-house. Uh, they have people to vacuum the floors. They have people to do this, all this for them. And we love it. And we dream of being in a position like theirs ourselves one day. The fundamental principle you see in this world around power is that the lesser serves the greater. The lesser serves the greater. And we long to be the great and to have what they have and to have others serve us. We admire it. And that's what's so shocking about John 13. Jesus knows that the hour has come. He's talking about the hour of his departure through death, resurrection and ascension into the presence of his father. His ministry to the 12 has been one of love. He has protected and kept them, and now he will love them right to the end. Look at verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, just a reminder, they're at, they're at the evening meal, the one we know as the Last Supper. The devil has already done his work in Judas's heart. He is still present with them at this meal, but he's soon to be sent off by Jesus to go and do his wicked work. And at this profound moment... Uh, John tells us that Jesus was fully self-aware, aware of his own unparalleled power given to him by his Father, his coming from God and his imminent going to God. And directly because of this awareness, he gets up, takes out off his outer garments, wraps himself at Around, uh, sorry, wraps a towel around himself and he begins washing the disciples' feet. Look with me at verse 2. The evening meal was in progress. 
And the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things in his power and that he had come from God and was returning from, to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, this is a perplexing moment for the disciples. Very perplexing and even disturbing. It's just not right. The washing of someone's feet was reserved for the very least in the Jewish world. In fact, not even a Jewish slave could be asked to wash their master's feet. The only person who could wash their feet was a non-Jewish, a Gentile slave. Only they washed people's filthy feet. There is a rabbi who was in the second century AD named Yehuda Hanazi, um, was highly respected uh, as a Jewish teacher, and he was said to embody the seven virtues uh, listed by the sages for the righteous one. He was said to be so humble that he would do anything for others except relinquish his superior position. Not so with Jesus. Jesus dresses as a servant, as a slave, now takes that low, that despised position, not even a Jew, Jewish slave would take, and he washes his disciples' feet. In the kingdom of God, when power is around, it shows itself in the greater, humbly serving the lesser. And so Jesus shows them the full extent of his love. That's an alternative translation of verse one. In our Bible, it says he loved them to the end. And the translation probably has a double sense. That is the end of his earthly life, but also that he loved them utterly, completely, to the uttermost, as one old translation put it. And notice, he washes Judas's feet among the others in his love. The one who he knows is about to betray him. To us, that seems really odd. It doesn't make sense. Why do that? Why not snub him? You know what's going to happen. But Jesus loves even his enemy to the end. Now, did you see what happened when Jesus gets to Peter? Peter objects to what his Lord is doing. Are you going to wash my feet? You'll understand later, says Jesus. No, says Peter. You'll never wash my feet. It's too demeaning to do such a thing to you. To which Jesus says something strange. 
He says, unless I serve you in this way, you will not be included as one of mine. My serving you is an essential part of you being my disciple. Well, Peter replies, then wash me all over, head to foot, go for it, Jesus. No need, says Jesus. You're already clean from your bathing. You don't need everything washed, but I must wash your feet. So in verse 6, he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realise now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, says Peter, you will never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only wash their feet. The whole body, their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. Now, this is a very memorable uh, event in Jesus' dealings with his disciples. What is the lesson there to take away from it? Well, Jesus is showing them what they are to do for one another now. This is to be their love for each other. Jesus is about to depart, which he explains in a way that is um, a bit perplexing to the disciples in verse 33. They still don't understand about his death and what that means and the events that will follow. They're grappling and struggling with it. But the point is, Jesus will not be with them much longer. They must give their attention now to lowly service toward each other the way he has shown. So verse 12, when he had finished washing their feet, he put his clothes and put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, You'll be blessed if you do them. Now, this washing of the disciples' feet points to the ultimate washing, of course, that is to come. When Judas has departed into the night, in verse 30, 
Jesus says in verse 31, now the son of man is glorified and God is glorified in him. And what is his glory? In the it is the ultimate working out of washing their filthy feet. His glory is that he will go now to his death on a cross on their behalf to do the much more important washing, the washing away of the filth of their sins. And how are they to live when he departs? Again, to say it in another way, it is by loving one another in the same way he has loved them. So look at verse 31. When he, Judas, was gone, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I'll be with you only a little longer. You will look, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. He says it's a new command. They already have such command in the Old Testament in Leviticus 19 verse 18, to love your neighbour as yourself. But now in the impending death of Jesus, it is richly new and embodied gloriously in Jesus himself. And here is the mark that defines who his disciples truly are. You see, the mark of a disciple of Jesus is the character of their love and service for one another. It's not firstly their doctrine, though that of course is vitally important. They must believe Jesus is the Son of God. He'll make that point very strongly. John will in 1 John uh, in that letter. Nor is it their religiousness or their church commitment that's important. It's not their busyness or their sacrifice in doing works for God, even great sacrifice. It is their love for each other the readiness to lovingly serve one another in the most humble ways that shows that they are the disciples of Jesus. They do not at this point understand, as I said, Jesus' death. So all they have is the washing of their feet and that is an emblem through which they could understand how deep the humility of a of their, desire, their love is to be. 
The glory you see of Christ's people is not their titles. It is not their servants around them, their wealth or prosperity, the cars and the carriages, or the degree to which they have people who do the menial tasks for them. No, our glory as disciples of Jesus is Jesus himself, which means our glory is our humble giving of ourselves utterly to love and serve each other the way the Lord Jesus, our Lord and Master, gave himself to serve us. In the kingdom of God, the greater gladly serves the least. A little show of hands. How many of you have been to a wedding? Okay, keep your hand up. Keep your hand up if the passage at the wedding was 1 Corinthians 13. Okay, good number. It's a very popular passage for weddings, isn't it? Very popular indeed. Very famous for the weddings. And uh, when all else fails, amongst all the weddings that I've taken in my ministry, that is without doubt the most popular passage that people go to. It sounds so nice. But it's actually not a wedding passage. Did you realise that? It's not that Paul gets to a point in his letter and says, oh, I'll give you something to preach at a, a wedding. Um, not at all. In fact, most likely it is a rebuke to the Corinthians who were divided amongst themselves into various parties and who were puffed up because of their spectacular gifts. They were very gifted peoples. Paul wants to get them to see the most excellent way. The most excellent way is not to chase after great gifts, spectacular gifts. It is, no, the way of love. Without love, everything else they do, no matter how noble or humanly praiseworthy, everything else is worth absolutely nothing. Now, I know how this works in the Anglican system, um, and many of you may have a vague experience of how Anglicans do it. I wonder how it works in the Presbyterian system. Um, how do the honours flow? To be on the Committee of Management, I presume, is an honour. To be an elder is an honour. To be a session clerk is, a really, is really something, another honour. Yet Paul says here, in 1 Corinthians 13, that without love, none of those honours are worth a scrap of paper. And those who occupy such positions or any other, if they do not have love, they are worth nothing. Look at the passage. We've got it up here. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, 
I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I might boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. But what is love like as it's expressed to one another? This is not all of love, but he goes on in verse four. Uh, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. This is the kind of humble love that makes any deed or service worth something in the church. The love Jesus demonstrated in washing even their filthy feet and in his death, where he washed away their wretched sin and ours as well. A love that takes the lowest place, the lowest of the low. That is the love of Jesus. And so naturally, being humble taking the lowest place, love will be patient, won't it? And it will be kind. It will have no envy, will not boast, will honour, will not be self-seeking, won't be easily angered and so on. Now, why are we not more like this in our Christian circles? It's a real problem. Because as James says, and we're going to go to James chapters three uh, and then four, starting next week, he says it's because of our sinful envy and selfish ambition that we do not love like this. It is beneath us to love as Jesus loves. And also because we've lost our grip on what it means to have Jesus Christ as our King. Today marks 125 years, as Andrew said, and as Isaac has pointed out to us, since this church building opened in this community. So today is actually a great day to be thankful 
for the big picture of ministry provided by Epping Presbyterian Church here in Epping and beyond in the past and to look forward to the next 125 years. As you go forward, let me urge you to resolve to repent of any lovelessness in the past and to prove to the world and to this community that you are indeed the disciples of Jesus Christ. But you'll only do that if you'll have Jesus as your king. The exchange with Peter when Jesus comes to wash his feet is very telling. Peter, the disciple, is indignant with the king. Do you notice that? The eternal king of the universe comes to wash his feet and Peter says no. He even tells the king, King Jesus, what he should do and what he shouldn't do. But you see, unless Jesus, King Jesus, serves him, Jesus is not his, Peter's king, and he is not his Lord. In fact, Peter will have no part in Jesus if he won't let him serve him. And if you will not have Jesus' service to you in his death to take away your sin, maybe because you don't think you need his death for your sin, that you're fine without it, then he is not your Lord and King and you have no part of him and you do not know his love. On the other hand, if Jesus is not your Lord, he will not be your servant. For he became Lord and King by being crucified. And if you won't have him rule your life utterly, you have no part in his service, his death for you. And so here in your church, this church, Epping Presbyterian Church, you will only love one another if you have Jesus to be your servant and to cleanse you of your sins. If you will not have his death as the only way to be accepted by God, if you insist there must be some other way as well, like your own human goodness, I'm a good person, I'm a church-going person, if you will not have his death alone, you may have a polite friendliness to your relationships, but you will not have the love that Jesus is talking about here that will prove you are his disciples. And that's because you don't belong to him yet. And you will only love one another, therefore, if you will have Jesus Christ as the king and the ruler of your own life. And as king to serve you. For only 
he, as he reigns over you, in your obedience fully to his word, only he will teach you and train you in the ways of love and to turn away from jealousy and selfish ambition and to truly have the humility to love others around you as he has loved you. If you insist like Peter on telling King Jesus what to do, because you know better than him, what makes you think you have any part in him? He has given you his word about conflict, about marriage, about singleness, about sexuality, about work, and on we could go. In fact, there is no part of life that his word is not sufficient for you. Will you have him as your king and submit to it all and to his kingly rule? At this important point in Epping Presbyterian Church's life, will you have Jesus Christ serve you in, your, in his death? And will you have him as King and Lord of your life? And will you love one another as he has loved you? Let's pray. Father, we struggle with this passage. We struggle because of our pride, our selfish ambition, our jealousy of others, our worldliness of heart that aspires and yearns to be like the rich and powerful of this world. Forgive us, Lord. Change our hearts to see Jesus and to see Jesus in his deep humility, washing the filthy feet of his disciples, stretched out naked upon a wretched cross for our sin. Father, teach our hearts to love as he has loved us, to have him as our king and therefore to have him as our servant. And we pray that his love would resound through us to one another. We pray for a new, fresh outpouring of love one for another in this church. And we pray that the community would see it and would realise that this is a church full of disciples of Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen.